Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. I am very happy to have Jonah Berger with me here today. Uh, I'll give you some uh, just brief information about Jonah since I, if I went through the whole bio, we would be out of time. Uh, Jonah is a Wharton School professor. Uh, he's an international bestseller. Uh, he's written The Catalyst, Invisible Influence, Contagious, and most recently, Magic Words. He's a world-renowned expert on natural language processing, change, word of mouth, influence, consumer behavior, and why things catch on. He's published over 80 articles in top-tier journals. He teaches one of the world's most popular online classes, courses. And I have to tell you this, I made a note. He's been awarded the Iron Professor Award for Awesome Faculty Research. I love that. I want an Iron Award. Uh, so the New York Times and the Harvard Business Review regularly cover his work. He's keynoted hundreds of major conferences, including one of mine. And he advises various early stage companies and consults for organizations like Apple, Google, Nike, Amazon, Moderna, and the Gates Foundation, and a gazillion others. Jonah, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, this this new book, um, Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way. Why did you write this book now? You know, this is the research I've been working on for the past decade or so. Um, there have been two amazing trends that have been going on. First, um, almost everything we do involves language. And that's not new, right? Uh, we write emails, uh, we make PowerPoint presentations, we make phone calls, we send pitches, all of those things. That's been happening for a while, but more recently we've been able to digitize all this information. We now have records uh, of conversations that people have. Uh, you and I are talking over Zoom. If you choose to have a transcript function at the end of this uh, conversation, it'll spit out what, what we talked about. Uh, millions of people post content online, leaving records of their opinions and attitudes. Um, we have a sense of movie scripts and song lyrics. Um, salespeople have different pitches they use and can A-B test them and see which ones work out better. And so all this language data is being captured uh, in a new way. And there's new tools, uh, whether we talk about natural language processing, uh, machine learning, uh, computational linguistics, a variety of tools to parse this data for insight. And so it's a really powerful time where we can learn some of the things about influence that we may have wondered, but never been able to test. Now, I recall back in the days when I was laboring through psychology, I, I came upon uh, magic and scientific words, magic word, scientific word. Um, and you talked in this book, not about convoluted words and abstruse words. You talk about plain words that can be substituted to make a profound difference. And you've done research to prove this. So is this more important than ever today when we're, we're communicating so much by email and not in person? Uh, tell me about uh, the ramifications of that. You know, we use language all the time, uh, but while we think a lot about what we want to communicate, um, if I have a certain presentation, for example, and I'm thinking about, okay, I want the audience to support this, this idea, or if I'm pitching a client, I might be saying, okay, this is the perspective I want them to adopt. And so while we might think about the outcome we want to achieve, we think a lot less about the individual words uh, that we use, the way we get our points across. And that's actually a, a big mistake because small shifts in language can have a, a big difference. Let me give you a couple couple simple examples. So uh, a few years ago, they did a study uh, at Stanford University where they wanted to see uh, about persuasion and whether the language of persuasion uh, mattered. And so often when we try to get others to do things, uh, we'll use verbs. 
So you might say, can you help me out? Using the verb help, for example, to, to ask someone for assistance. Or similarly, if we're an organization trying to get people to vote, we might send out a mailer that says, hey, please go vote, right? Using the word vote, which is a verb to encourage uh, action. Um, but in this particular study, they wondered if a subtle shift in language might, might matter. So uh, in an elementary school, they went to a school, they made a big mess, and they asked students to help clean up that mess. And for some students, they used the usual approach, hey, can you, can you help clean up? And for other students, they added just two additional letters to the end of that word. Can you be a helper uh, and, and clean up? Now, the difference between help and helper is infinitesimally small, right? Literally two, two letters there, but it had a huge impact. Uh, it led to about, about a 30% increase in the percentage of people that helped clean up. And it's, it's not just kids in classrooms. Uh, a few years ago, a study looked at this with voting, where they actually mailed thousands uh, of messages to different voters, trying to get them to turn out uh, and vote. And for some people, they use the traditional approach, uh, will you vote? Um, but for others, they asked, will you be a voter? Now, again, the difference between vote and voters, very, very small. In that case, just a letter adding an R to the end uh, of vote. But what that did is it led to a 15% increase in the number of people that turned out uh, to vote. And the reason why is, is quite simple, right? If, if you think about it, we often can describe people in various ways. We can say someone runs, for example, or we can say so-and-so was a runner. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I'll let you think about it for a second. If I told you about two friends of mine, one who runs and one who is a runner, who might you guess runs more often? The runner. The runner, right? Yeah. It takes that action, running, um, uh, and frames it as an identity, right? Now it's a runner. And if it's an identity, well, it must be something that's more stable uh, and persistent over, over time. Uh, and so what this means is when we frame actions as identities, right, we turn voting or helping into identities, being a helper, being a voter, people are more interested in doing them because it's a way to claim a desirable identity, right? Now that action is a way to show that I'm this thing that I want to hold. The same holds on the on the negative side, but in the opposite direction, right? Um, losing is bad, being a loser is worse. Ah, Cheating right. is bad, being that's a right. cheater is even worse. And so if you want people to avoid a negative action, right, frame it as a negative identity, and that will encourage people to avoid doing it. We even think about pitching ourselves, right? We often say, uh, you know, so-and-so is a hard, uh, they're hardworking, or I am innovative, right, or, or creative. Um, calling ourselves a creator or an innovator or calling someone else a hard worker makes those traits seem more stable, more persistent, and are more likely to drive action. Yeah, I imagine on occasion you and I both said to people, I'm a writer, uh, which carries a certain implication. Now, you had a fascinating example in here that stunned me. You said that if somebody wants to break into line to use the copying machine and they just say, excuse me politely, but may I use the machine that somebody else is using? Uh, you know, likely to be rebuffed. They might be let in. But if somebody says, uh, may I use the copy machine because I'm running behind and my boss needs this or whatever the example was, that was a justification. But then you said, if the person said, may I use the copy machine because I need to make copies, they also had a better chance, which seems like a you know. So how, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, this is a really simple example. Again, just one word, the word because. Right. Um, and, and you might say, well, the thing after the because matters a lot. Right. Because a good reason is more powerful than because a bad, a bad reason. And, and I'm not saying the reason doesn't matter, but even simply the word because with a bad reason makes people more likely to say yes, because I need to make. Can I use the copier because I have to make copies? Well, that's kind of already obvious. Right. You're asking to use the copier. Of course, right. you must need to, to make copies. But um, the because makes me feel like, wow, you must have a reason. Right. You have a justification 
for doing this. It's not just a request you're making. There's a reason. And because there's a reason, you might think heuristically, well, I, I should probably say, say yes. And so even just subtle, simple things, the, the simple words we use can make a big difference in a variety of different domains. Uh, you use a great deal of social proof in your books. Uh, and in this book particularly, you go from nursery school to CEOs and everything in between. And it occurred to me that people who read the book, if they can immediately understand what you're talking about by suddenly listening for what you refer to and watching how others do it, either positively or negatively. Uh, so is there the ability of people to quickly make adjustment and begin using these traits? Yeah, you know, the, the book um, uh, has a variety of different chapters. There are six key types uh, of magic words, and, and you can put them in a, a framework called the SPEAK framework. And, and the S stands for similarity, the P stands for posed questions, the E is emotion, the A is agency and identity, C is concreteness, and another C uh, is um, uh, the language of confidence. But, but I've ordered them in the book from sort of simple and easy to use to, to more difficult. So uh, rather than asking for help, ask someone to be a helper. That's painfully, painfully simple. Yeah. Um, similarly, there's a whole chapter on questions, posing questions, where, where I even talk about the tendency to ask for advice. Now, most of us avoid asking for advice, right? If we're we're uh, stuck in a tough thing, we don't know what to do. We often avoid asking for advice because we're, we're worried to make us look bad, right? You know, we're bothering someone or even worse, they'll think we're not very competent because we don't know how to do it uh, ourselves. And while that intuition makes a lot of sense, it's actually quite misguided because the research shows that asking for advice actually makes us look better rather than worse, smarter rather than, than, than incompetent. And the reason why is very simply, people think their own advice is good, right? We're all self-centered. We all think we give great advice. And so if someone asks us for advice, we go, wow, they must be pretty smart, right? They're smart enough to ask me for advice. They must be pretty smart themselves. And so there's a whole chapter on the right types of questions to, to ask. And that doesn't take a lot of work, right? It's just thinking about how to use these strategies and when the opportunities are for them. But I've arrayed them from simple to more difficult. So you can start with the basics and, and then move to some more complex things once you understand the more basic approaches. But as you know, you know, I, I spend my career advising people uh, how to be more successful in marketing and sales and consulting services and expertise and so on. And it's always surprised me that people will come to me and, and immediately tell me that the problem is their buyer. Because if the buyer was <laughs> smart enough to hire them, how can the buyer be the problem? It's exactly what you talked about. So uh, I've told people for a long time that I believe that logic makes people think, but emotion really makes them act. You need an emotional connection. And it seems to me that a lot of what you talk about does affect people emotionally, not just logically. Is that is that a true statement? I think that's um, uh, certainly true in some situations, right? People talk about different ways to process information. And um, one is uh, a more sort of heuristic, quick, uh, more emotional type uh, of processing. How does this make me feel? Is it good or bad? I approach the good things, I avoid the bad ones. There are certainly other situations, more sort of cognitive, deliberative. I need to think a long time to figure out which house to buy, for example, that, that requires more effort. And so their emotion may be a little less important. But I do think in general, people stay away from emotion more than they should. Emotion is a really powerful way to, to hold attention, um, to persuade others, um, and to move them in your direction. And so there's a whole chapter I have there about sort of emotional language, different types of emotional language, and how to use it in a variety of different situations. Well, what really strikes me in terms of people using this immediately is it's not stochastic. That is, uh, it's something you can deliberately put to use, uh, even on a small basis, start to see it work, 
and become more and more proficient at it uh, because you start to to get your way. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about is that your subtitle is uh, what to say to get your way. Now, we tend to talk about win-win situations. This sounds like, you know, sort of win, not so much win. So explain that to me. You know, um, I feel mixed about this subtitle. Uh, <laughs> when you write a book, you got to pick a title and you have to pick a subtitle. And for for this book, the title was easy. I, I loved this title for a long time. I thought it was a good title. We went back and forth on the subtitle for a very long time. What I like about the subtitle is it rhymes. Um, it suggests that the book is about persuasion, which is one of the things the book is certainly about. Um, and there's a large set of people that are interested in in uh, in persuading others. And so I think for that sense, it's a it's a good subtitle. But there's lots of things in here that have nothing to do with persuasion. So there's content about how to hold people's attention, uh, for it, for example, and captivate audiences, be a better storyteller. There's content in here about how to solve problems and use language to be more creative or be better at sticking to your own goals. Um, there's even language here about how to deepen social connection, right, uh, with your loved ones and, and the right questions to connect more with anyone in your life. Connecting more with someone in your life isn't, isn't about getting your way as much as it is deepening that relationship. And so um, we tried a subtitle that was the, the words to connect and persuade and captivate and do 17 other things. But that ended up being too long. And so so this is the one we went with, even though it's not perfect. I've, I've had that battle with publishers myself. <laughs> so I, I can't help but ask you, given when you and I are talking right now, uh, how does chat GPT oh, yeah. affect this in writing? Because is that going to homogenize it or is it going to help it or hurt it? So tell me about your reactions to this. Yeah, I, I would say a few things. And so, you know, I, I've been working in this space for a while. Um, and so uh, ChatGPT is a, a new version uh, of something we've been seeing out there. But it's an example of a large language model, which which uses uh, existing language, in this case, prompts um, to create uh, to create responses. I think in some ways, this is going to change uh, some ways we communicate, right? Now, rather than writing a persuasive email, I might say, oh, hey, chat GPT, write me a persuasive email, right, about this, about this topic. I think, though, a few things are still the case. First, right, we have to think about the right prompts. Um, uh, it's not coming up with something by itself. And so the words you use in, in a prompt are going to matter. If you ask it to write a persuasive email versus a convincing email versus a persuasive email to your boss, you're going to get different uh, responses. But but second, um, uh, while this may homogenize language in some ways, I think if people are just saying, well, I'm going to kick a, a prompt over to ChatGPT, it's going to take care of it, and that's all I'm going to do, that's a big mistake, right? Because uh, if you're not sitting there and editing some of the content, if you're not using the tools, um, you're missing out on, on some big opportunities. And so, you know, technology by itself is neither good nor bad. It's, it's a yeah. tool that can be used for um, good things and not so good things. I think um, uh, it will help some of us do easy tasks more efficiently. But I think for the folks that want to use language more effectively, it's a place to start, but it's not a place to end. That makes sense. That makes sense. I have two more questions for you, Jonah. The first is, yeah. um, and you must have come across this as you did all this research and writing. Uh, we, could you point to any people today who you consider especially proficient just in their natural communication at using magic, uh, as you pointed out? You know, um, uh, and I don't want to get into politics here, but um, uh, so I'll, I'll make it very clear up front. Whether you like Donald Trump or not, um, you you can't deny that he has been a, amazingly effective at selling his ideas. 
Um, whether you think those are good ideas or bad ideas may be a separate question, but he's been amazingly effective uh, at selling those ideas. Uh, and if you look at the language he uses, he speaks with an intense degree of confidence, right? And, and we all have folks in our own lives who, who speak of it. His, his language just exudes confidence, right? Things are obvious. It's extremely true. This will definitely happen. There's no question. Um, in some cases, the language outpaces what what is actually possible, um, but people listen to him. One reason people listen to him is because his language is, is so confident. And so there's a whole chapter in the book about how to convey confidence through the language uh, we use. You know, we often hedge, we often say things like this might be true or this could happen, or I think this is the case. Um, unfortunately, hedges uh, reduce our impact yeah. in part because they make us seem less confident, right? They make other people think we're less sure about what we're saying. And if we're less sure about it, why should they listen? But there are certain types of hedges that are less detrimental than, than others. And so I talk a lot about the language of confidence in the book, in part because I think we see it all around us. We all have friends who, who are amazing, they exude confidence, and the language of certainty is, is one way they do it. I have to admit, I didn't expect you to use that example, but as I think about it, it seems to me that some people who have a natural affinity to use the kind of language you're talking about are successful in their influence and in their movement and so forth. And consequently, it perhaps subconsciously keeps reinforcing that kind of language. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and you know, I mean, I think part of how people make judgments is not just whether something is right, but whether someone seems like they are certain, right? There's research on financial advisors that shows that people prefer advisors that are more certain, even when they're no more right. Right? Because you assume, well, if they're certain, they must be right, be right. And so whether we're talking about politicians or startup founders or gurus, um, they often use quite certain language. I think that's how Peter Drucker created strategy, as a matter of fact. So, so ladies and gentlemen, on The Uncomfortable Truth, you've just heard a distinguished Iron Award winner uh, from the Wharton School um, use Donald Trump as an example of effective language. You can't hear that anywhere else. I want you to know that. Uh, Jota, where can people learn more about your books? Uh, where can they buy this book? And how can they learn more about some of the things you also provide beyond this? Sure. So thank you so much, first of all, for having me on. Um, uh, you can find me uh, at Jonah Berger, just my first name, last name, .com. Um, the book is available wherever books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever, wherever you like. There's also a whole bunch of free resources uh, on my site. So a one-pager of the Speak Framework, um, a guide for asking better questions, and a variety of content to, to help you apply the ideas. And of course, you can find me uh, on social media at either J1Burger on Twitter uh, or similarly on, on LinkedIn. And I will tell you from personal experience, Jonah is a fantastic speaker and he just mesmerizes groups. He was he was tremendous for us. He also told me confidentially that uh, everything is better with bacon on it. And I've taken that. <laughs> you have a good memory. <laughs> you know, I learn wherever I can learn, Jonah. Thank you for being here. I greatly appreciate it. Continued success. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.